Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? I want to introduce you this morning to a woman that you may be somewhat familiar with because you have read the Scriptures, but her name is Dorcas. Her story is remarkable. It's told at the end of chapter 9 by Luke as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. You may be familiar with this story, and maybe not, but I will tell you that there are things buried in this narrative that are truly remarkable and that actually speak profoundly to what you have just heard. Acts 9, verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, and he knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I um, think it would be really fun one Sunday, a baptism Sunday, to baptize a little girl named Dorcas. I don't know how many of you expectant mothers have considered that name if you have a child in the womb, a girl. And I understand there might be lifelong ramifications of a name like Dorcas, but she has become one of my favorites. I really mean it. This story is an amazing story. Let me introduce you to Dorcas. We don't know much about her. She was probably single and probably living alone. There's no mention of a husband or family, even as she is there laying laid in the upper room. Dorcas, we're told, was full of good works and acts of charity. That's important because what is revealed immediately by Luke is that this woman had profound faith. She had a faith that was born out of a heart that had been resurrected spiritually. She had a heart that at some point in her life said, I actually believe in Jesus, the one who's the way, the truth, and the life. And true faith, which is in Christ alone, by grace alone, always manifests works. A man or a woman or a child, when they say, I believe in Jesus, true faith then results in works. It goes deep into the heart that then says, I need to love others the way Christ has loved me. I need to be involved in extending his kingdom, just as he extended himself to me. 
And so Luke, the physician who honored women so well, speaks of her and says in verse 36, she was full of good works and acts of charity, and charity means love. I want to take a moment to tell you how proud I am of the women in this church. Countless times I see women who are doing the works of Dorcas, women who are responding to a need that is in our church or in our city or in our state or nation, who are eager to show that their faith in Jesus Christ, given by faith alone, by the grace of God alone, has demonstrated the love of God so much that they say, it must exit my hands and feet. I never worry when there is a need that if I call one of the women in our church to respond, that she will move quickly to make that need met with grace and God's glory. Sisters, I love you, and I am so deeply grateful for the way in which the Lord has made that resurrection happen in your heart, that at some point you recognize you're his beloved daughters, and he is using you in mighty ways to advance his kingdom. I give God praise for the way in which you seek to bring him glory and not yourself. I give God praise for the ways in which you enter in in small ways you might think as homeroom moms or somebody that comes alongside and creates a list of meals for someone who's in need or simply shows up week after week with someone who might not even know you're there. You are bringing God glory and praise as you say yes to the needs that are present in this world. This is what Dorcas did. We don't just have this statement from Luke that she was a woman who was full of good works and acts of charity. We actually have the testimony of it. Did you see it? Peter has been told, he's in Lydda, or in Joppa, that he uh, is to come because this servant of the Lord, Dorcas Tabitha, has died. This is very interesting because Peter, and the fact that they would call him to come, had never been used by God to raise anyone from the dead. In fact, in the New Testament, there are only five resurrections. Three were done by Jesus. You had Jairus' daughter, the widow of Nain's son, and Lazarus. Lazarus is the one we always think of, but there were five. Those three by Jesus, one by Paul when Eutychus, remember the one who fell during the long sermon and died, was raised from the dead. And now here, Peter is called. I think it's phenomenal that they would urge Peter to come. What were they expecting? There was no narrative that it was ordinary for the apostles to be used by God to raise people from the dead. Yet they felt compelled to send word to him. And what does it say happened? Luke says he rose up. He rose up and he went. And as he gets there, he encounters this woman's body. Dorcas wasn't just asleep. She truly was dead. Her body was cold with death. And there, tending to her body, having washed it, having bathed it, are the widows who were mourning. Now, these are not the professional mourners that you might think of. These are women who were blessed by Dorcas. Women who are deeply grieved that their dear sister 
in the Lord. The servant of the Lord has died and gone to be in the presence of Jesus. How do we know? Look with me at verse 39. So Peter rose and he went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was still with them. Do you see it? The woman's body is lying there. Peter has been called and has journeyed as he's been invited to come. And I'm not sure what Peter's thinking is going to happen. He had never been used by God to do what he is about to do. And there he enters into this room and these women who love this woman who has now died, they speak to Peter. And what do they do? They show him the garments that this woman who's lying there dead used her hands to stitch, stitch and stitch, so that these widows could be covered in warmth, so that their provision could be met. And so they're living witnesses to what Dorcas's faith had revealed. It's beautiful, isn't it? Life matters. Peter then instructs the women to leave. Peter put them outside, it says in verse 40, and then he knelt down and he prayed. You may not know what to do as it relates to this issue that we're discussing this morning. You may not know what to do about a lot of the brokenness in the world, but know you, you and I must always start with prayer. And prayer is powerful because we live in a supernatural world and the God who ordains the means by which things happen has ordained prayer as one of those means. So pray, people, pray. He knelt down and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she did. Let that sink in. She did. If this happened today, imagine how busy Dorcas's calendar would suddenly get. She would actually be the one speaking at the bridge this Tuesday night. And I would have said to introduce her to you, a few weeks ago, this woman was raised from the dead. She was actually dead. You might want to go hear what she has to say. And it would be busy. It would be big. There would be people from all over the city there. She would quickly be invited to speak on all the networks. Christian publishing companies would be fighting over how much to give her so that they could have her book and maybe a subsequent book. It's a big deal. Don't miss it. She was dead. They bathed her. They mourned over her. And now as this apostle prays and speaks to her and says, rise, she's alive. He takes her hand, he raises her up, and then he walks outside. And I love what Luke says. He, verse 41, presented her alive. Imagine that scene. You are wearing the clothes that she made. Her hands knitted that together. Your hands have been touching her dead body. And now there she is standing. And Peter says, presenting Dorcas alive. It happened. It happened. It really happened. The story of what took place, verse 42 says, became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we read through the narratives of the gospel, 
it's important that we read asking God to give us eyes of faith to see what is really here. I hope this morning that you've learned something new about Dorcas. I did in the study, but Dorcas isn't the hero of the story. Only one man is always the hero, and it's not Peter. It's Jesus, the one to whom Peter was praying. Dorcas's story is very remarkable. Her example is incredible. But the sermon doesn't end with me saying to you, go now and be like Dorcas. You'll be tempted to do that in your own flesh. There is not power in our flesh. There's power in the one who can't be stopped. Not even death can stop him. There's power in the one who was the one that raised her from the dead. And it wasn't Peter. It was God himself. The power exists in the God of the universe, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's much to learn. I want to read to you um, from a book written in 1873. I want to read more than I normally would because I think it's so powerful. And I think it relates very specifically to the issue of sanctity of life. Dr. William Arnett in 1873 wrote a commentary on the book of Acts. I've never heard of him. It was titled The Church and the House. It was actually meant to be read on Sabbath, sun, Sabbath day afternoons for families. I discovered him because of Spurgeon. Sometimes I want to look at the people my favorite preachers are listening to or reading, and this would have been one for Spurgeon. He writes about Dorcas. He describes her life, her charity, her faith. He also speaks about the resources that she had and the incredible impact. And then he connects it to the work that's happening where his church exists and the deep needs that are present in his day as a pastor. So please lean in as I read. Some of the English is a little old and it might be difficult, but, but lean in and listen. He says, the resources at our disposal today, and this is 1873, are much greater than those which belong to the primitive Christians. There is a greater number of loving hearts and there is greater power in the operator's hands. Cotton, the spinning jenny, the power loom, the sewing machine, who shall calculate how many times these modern discoveries have multiplied love's power of doing good wherever there is real living love? Besides all these, 1873, remember, we have more money in our hands, easier means of transit, and greater facilities for combination. The earth produces more, and the power of nature performs for us all the harder portions of the labor. What Dorcas in our city today could do more with her own hands than five in Lydda in the time of Peter. And again, this is 1873. Yet, now lean into this, yet with all these advantages, we have not overtaken the destitution. In some quarters, it is increasing on our hands. Widows, and orphans are in want within sound of our Sabbath bells.
And they are, right in our city, with so many churches like ours, with so much power, with so much money, with so much skill. The state of the poor around us should put us to shame. He's speaking to his church in 1873. It should hush our manifold divisions and disputes and bring us into one that we might be stronger for the Lord's work in the world. And then he writes, I could point to scenes of horrid cruelty which would make the blood stand still in your veins if you saw them, and yet they are at our own doors. Children in our cities are starved and killed by slow degrees for want of food and clothing. Why should this be while there are so many really benevolent hearts and so great resources at the disposal of the community? There is a deeper thing than the hunger and nakedness of the children. There is a root which bears these bitter fruits. And he's about to tell you what it is. And it's going to surprise you. It is the drunkenness of the parents. And he didn't mean this as a metaphor. It was truly the drunkenness of the parents who found themselves in the pubs and the pawn shops, who then neglected the needs of their children, who then died because their needs were not being met. It's very dark. This is the gulf which we are unable to fill. There it yawns as represented by public houses and pawn shops between the warm hearts of the Christian and the starving children. There it yawns, a bottomless pit. You may throw into it all the wealth of the kingdom, the mighty contribution. He means the, 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 the British kingdom. He means government. But it will sink out of sight in the quagmire and you will be as far from the naked children as before. Then he speaks of Dorcas. Dorcas types. Let me keep reading just a little more, please. Dorcas sits at home with a burning heart. For she has seen ragged, barefooted children on the street in the winter's cold. She sits and sews, stitch, stitch, stitch. Love makes the needle go until the garment is completed. With light feet, she trips down on the morrow to the place where the naked child dwells. She clothes it and departs. Next day, she will visit her charge and see how the child fares. The child is naked again. The mother is drunk and the house is cold. The garment that Dorcas made lies on the shelf of the pawn shop and the money in the till of the nearest pub. Thus, the meal goes round. The mill that grinds little children to feed the real giants, more terrible than all the pictured monsters that terrified the nursery. This process is conducted on a great scale, crushing the little ones into premature graves. If the geologist of a future era should dig into the strata of our cemeteries, they will be amazed to find so large a proportion of the remains to be infants' bones. They will judge it contrary to nature. What can be the cause of this phenomenon? If the history of our time shall be extracted, they will learn from it what their philosophy could not tell them, that the vice of the parents slaughtered the children, yet the nation looks on helpless. 1873, 
My friends, we live in Christ Jesus. And the power that we possess in Christ is resurrection power. The evil that is around us, we would not mark up as mothers who are drunk. There are some like that for sure. But the evil which would be extracted with infants' bones happens to be the issue of abortion. And it's a different type of drunkenness that causes a man or a woman to say, we should kill the life of this child before the child ever comes out of the womb. It's a drunkenness of ease. It is a drunkenness out of fear. It is a drunkenness of self. And the Lord has called you and me not to stand and in evil ways simply rebuke those women and men who find themselves in that crisis, but to stand with them and say there is hope in a greater power that can give you everything you need now and for all eternity to be the parent that he's calling you to be. But here's what must happen and why Luke's story in Acts is so powerful. When we read the story of Acts and the life of Dorcas, it's easy to be caught up in the physical resurrection of this woman's life. It was extraordinary. But let me explain something. It required no less power of God for Dorcas to be spiritually resurrected before her physical body ever needed it. It required no less power of God for all who would believe upon hearing that story and have their own hearts spiritually resurrected. In other words, the flowers here that represent the babies whose lives were saved, it's amazing, are no less powerful than the ones that represent the men and women who experienced salvation because the word of God was proclaimed. Resurrection power is necessary for anyone to believe in Jesus. Resurrection power is what is promised. Resurrection power is what is visible here in this passage, but it's not just the physical resurrection. It is the spiritual resurrection where the Lord himself and the power of the Holy Spirit illuminates hearts and minds to believe in Jesus. So let me encourage you with this. It is easy to look at the issues facing our world and see how dark they are and to say, I can't take it anymore. Or I, I don't know what difference this is making. Because of the power of the gospel and the power of the Lord himself and what exists in us and for us, don't stop and never give up. Don't stop and never give up. Because the message that Luke is bringing through this narrative of the early church, New Testament church, is that God is powerful. He is all-powerful. And with God, all things are possible and nothing is impossible. Don't stop and never give up. I said there were five resurrections. 
Well, you know, if you were listening carefully, there are actually six. And the one I left out is the one that's most important. And that was the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, who conquered the darkest of darks, the sin of the world. And he did so after he went to the cross to die for all sin. He died. His body was taken down and placed in the tomb. But Jesus was resurrected. He walked upon the earth and continued to minister before he ascended into heaven. And before he ascended, he said to those disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That power was manifest this day in Dorcas's life. But that same power was manifest before when she had the faith to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you come today and you've made a decision in your past that it's hard for you to get away from, and in hearing something like that which I read just burdens your heart, I want you to know that his grace is sufficient for you. His forgiveness is there. If you were the one who paid for the abortion or supported it or were silent when you knew of a friend or a loved one who was moving forward, his grace is sufficient for you. There is forgiveness found in the cross. But I know very personally from close friends who have gone through that, how deeply destructive that decision continues to be. The temptation is to not believe that his grace is sufficient. It is. It is for you. And for the rest of us, there's another temptation. And that is to believe that he doesn't have the power. Don't believe that. God can't be stopped. We don't know his will. We don't know what he's going to do. We don't know how he's going to use us. But his power is in us. Don't stop. And never give up. Lord Jesus, it's only because of the power that you have given us that we could even begin to believe. And we as a body are about to lift our voices to you, singing of our own redemption. And Lord Christ, we would pray that even as we sing, we would be reminded of who we are in you. If there are any present that don't know you, Lord, I ask that you would draw them to you even now. Lord, let us trust you and let us trust your power and let us see your work in and through us, our faith, a gift from you being revealed to the world. And Lord, as we move forward, would you do that work which you did then causing many people to believe that you, Christ, are the way, the truth, and the life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.